0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Ezra, chapter 10. Ezra, chapter 10. Today we come to the last chapter of the book of Ezra, and we find an ending that is quite different from the beginning. The book opens with what we might call the miraculous. Cyrus, the newly crowned king of Persia, Issues a proclamation regarding the building or the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. He returns the materials that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And a group of exiles decide to go back home. At least 42,000 of them return back to the promised land. And when they get there, they settle in their homes. They offer sacrifices in line with the Mosaic system. And they lay the foundation of the temple. Exciting times. But then as we've seen, opposition came. And it will be ongoing through the rest of the book and into Nehemiah, which the Lord willing will begin next week. Opposition takes different forms. First of all, it is the temptation to compromise. We're just like you. You should let us participate. There is the attempt to discourage or create fear. And finally, there's direct opposition by going to authorities to get the king, for example, to stop them from what they're doing. Oftentimes this opposition is ongoing, it's not a one-shot thing. And at one point we see three attempts are made to get the Persian king to stop the work. In the third letter, they are able to get the king to stop the work. Based on a faulty reading of the history of the Jewish people, the king decides that the work must be stopped. And it does stop for 16 years. So it would seem that the opposition was successful. And at this point, you might think, well, you know, it started out good, and, but it seems that all is lost. But then the Lord sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Two prophets to speak to the people to encourage them to start up again the project of rebuilding the temple. And between August and December, Haggai gives four sermons in which he calls the people to get back to the work of building the temple. And they do. They go back. They start working again. Which means the opposition is going to start up again. But then again, it's something that might seem miraculous. Darius sides with the Jews against those who are their enemies. And he makes it clear that the building of the temple is to continue, is to be financed out of the royal treasury, that is taxes, and that there is to be no opposition. In fact, Darius says, Furthermore, I decree that if anyone ch- changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house to be made a pile of rubble. My God, who has caused his name to dwell there, or may God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy the, this temple at Jerusalem. And within four and a half years, The temple is completed. It is dedicated. That's the first six chapters of this book. In chapter 7 we come to this man for whom the book is named Ezra. And it seems that we are in for another series of miracles. This Ezra is a man who is a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. The king granted him everything he asked for. For the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. As Darius had done before, this king now does the same. The royal treasury is in fact to finance the sacrificial system. And again, there is a threat against anyone who opposes Ezra and the Jews. This is what he says. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach anyone who does not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So he's given a blank check, and beyond that, the king gives him gold and silver to take back to Jerusalem, and the amount is staggering. 650 talents of silver, that's almost 50,000 pounds of silver. 200 talents of silver in the vessels, that's 15,000 pounds. 100 talents of gold, that's 7,500 pounds of gold. It's quite amazing. And Ezra, who is a scholar, he's well known, he's trusted, does something as we saw last week, which I think is very prudent, but also very wise. He divides this gift that the king has given up among 12 priests and 12 Levites. Each one is given an equal share and they are responsible to make sure that it gets back to Jerusalem safely. But before they leave, Ezra calls for a fast. There by the Ahava canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And indeed, after a four-month journey from Babylon, they make it to Jerusalem safely. So it's all good, right? Seems like things are going well. But then chapter 9, which we looked at last week, opens with some of the leadership coming to Ezra to report that, quote, "...the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices." like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And now that which seemed like it was going to be amazingly wonderful, now seems doomed to failure. One might wonder, what's the big deal? Why do they have to report this? We saw last week that the issue isn't simply intermarriage. These are not xenophobes. That We're Jews, they're not, they're Gentiles. And some of the Jews are marrying Gentiles, and that's just not acceptable. It would almost seem that these people, and then Ezra, who sides with them, is really quite intolerant of diversity. Why are they opposed to this? As we saw last week, this isn't just about intermarriage. It's about their detestable practices. And something I didn't mention last week, I think part of our problem is we see religion as a separate part of our lives. It's something we do on Sundays. Uh, It's a very, very modern view of, of reality. Other people see their faith, their religion, as involving everything in their lives. From the time they get up to the time they go to bed, everything is covered by that. So that if, in fact, a believer in the true God were to marry someone who believed in idols, there would obviously be a conflict. It isn't like, well, okay, you do your thing over there and I'll do mine over here. It affects every area of life. So that if somebody married a pagan, there would be no question that eventually that person would end up doing pagan things because it covers every area of life. God called Abraham, this was the beginning of Israel, and then Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons. And then they go into Egypt and 400 years later after being delivered from slavery they go to Sinai and God makes a covenant, an agreement with them. And he tells them they are not to intermarry. He says you are the people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people and his treasured possession. They are not to intermarry and yet we see not much longer after they they hadn't been in the promised land that much that long and suddenly they're intermarrying with the local population. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites and they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. That's the issue. It isn't the intermarriage. It is the resulting idolatry that happens. And the report is made to Ezra simply because it was due to idolatry and following the practices of their neighbors that Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and God's people were taken into exile. And it's happening all over again. It is as though they did not learn their lesson. Ezra's reaction is found in verses 3 through 5. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord by God. Last week we looked at this prayer and I would just point out that first of all Ezra identifies with these people. He doesn't say those people over there have done this wicked thing. He starts out by saying I and then it shifts to we. He does not distance himself from these people. He doesn't protest his innocence. Rather, as in the words of Isaiah, he is numbered among the transgressors. He is a part of the people of God. And when one part of the people of God sin, it affects everyone. It's not as though you can say, well, I didn't do that. It is, in fact, communal sin. And Ezra confesses that. Secondly, he's profoundly aware of the effects of sin. The word remnant keeps coming up. They had once been a great people, and now they are a shadow. They are a fraction of what they once were. But then he ends with an awareness of the grace of God. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. The end in verse fifteen O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though not though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. As I said at the end last week, his prayer is without excuse, no excuses. In fact, there's not even a request for forgiveness. It is, in fact, a prayer of confession. This is the scene that we come to now here in chapter 10. And if you look at verse number 1, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. See, Ezra doesn't go out and start pointing the finger and preaching at people. Rather, he prays, and people are drawn to this. Their consciences have been touched, have been prodded. And a large crowd gathers around him, and they grieve as well. They get this. They get why Ezra is praying as he is. Verse 2 then shechaniah son of jehelio one of the descendants of elam and to ezra we have been unfaithful to our god by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us but in spite of this there is still hope for israel as far as we can tell shechaniah is probably not one of those who intermarried with the neighboring peoples and their detestable practices We'll see in verses 18 through 44, his name is not listed there. But he speaks as a representative. As Ezra, he is numbered among the transgressors. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God. The act of marrying heathen women is an act of unfaithfulness to God. Because God says this is what you're supposed to do or not do. And in fact, the people have done quite the opposite. But there is a glimmer of hope. There is hope for Israel. So Shekaniah proposes a solution. It is a radical solution. Look at verse number 3. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. The solution that he proposes is Divorce. All of these heathen women are to be put out. The Jewish men are to divorce these women and send them home with their children. It's a radical solution. But that the people would take this seriously, they have to swear before God that this, in fact, is what they will be doing. And this is to be done in accordance with the law. Ezra is an expert in the law. He knows how this works. We will come to the matter of divorce later in the sermon. But I think his suggestion may strike us as strange. It is almost as though he is calling on God's people to do something that is wrong in order to correct the wrong. And as my mother always told me, two wrongs don't make a right. And so this seems as though something's not quite right here. When he says according to the law, I think there are one of two things, or maybe both, that he has in mind. First of all, in Deuteronomy 7, they are not to intermarry. So now they're correcting that. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we have instructions with regard to divorce. And a man can't simply say, go home, I divorce you. He has to give her a written certificate. So that when she leaves, people will know there will be something, there will be a piece of paper that will in fact say that he has put her away. So Shechaniah then tells Ezra, verse 4, rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. In other words, swear that this is what we're going to do. Shechaniah takes the lead and he tells Ezra, who is in fact the leader, this is what you're supposed to do. We will support you. I know that this is a radical solution, but take courage and do it. This is what we are supposed to do. So Ezra does precisely as he has been encouraged to do—to put the the heathen well, to swear an oath so that they will put away their heathen wives and their children. Then we come to verse number six, and for me, this is—if there's one verse in the whole chapter to put in bold—to me, it's verse number six. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. See, Ezra's grief and his sorrow were genuine. They were not simply for show. In verse number three, that when he heard this, he tore his clothes, he pulled out his beard and his hair... um, And then the people gather around, so he has an audience. And so one might cynically imagine that Ezra did this as a show, as a performance, for people to see how he felt about it. I think verse number six puts any such thoughts to rest. His sorrow is sincere. His grief is not contrived. It's not a form of manipulation. It isn't utilitarian and I guess for me this is important because sort of raised in a tradition where oftentimes public prayer was a way of getting things that you wanted uh, a form of manipulation I remember it being said of a particular pastor that if anybody did something they shouldn't do and they couldn't find out who it was they'd call the pastor in and he'd start praying and by the time he was done praying the guilty person would confess Um, Ezra doesn't do that He is deeply sorrowful. He is grieved, not just publicly, but when he's alone by himself, he continues to grieve. And I think we should really take that to heart. So, actions are taken in verse number 7. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. This issue must be addressed immediately. And so everyone is to show up within three days. You know, we have cars, we have you know mass transit. Three days is not a problem, but when people get around on foot, or by horseback, or donkeys, uh, this, this is asking a lot. But in fact, That's what they are to do. And if they don't, then they will suffer not only material consequences, but spiritual. They will be excommunicated from Israel. They will no longer be a part of the people of God. And remember, Artaxerxes gave Ezra such power. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So we should not be surprised that in verse number 9... They all show up. Look at verse 9. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. It's the 20th day of the ninth month. For us, it's the middle of December. It's the middle of winter, but it's also a rainy season. It's a heavy rain. It's a cold rain. And So the people are greatly distressed. The ESV has that they trembled. For two reasons, the occasion, but also because of the rain. The way it's written in Hebrew, however, it's interesting that they trembled inwardly because of the occasion. And they trembled outwardly because of the heavy, cold rain. But they did gather. They did come together. If they don't know why they've been called to Jerusalem, they will find out shortly when Ezra the priest tells them. If you look at verses 10 and 11. In some commentaries, this is referred to as Ezra's sermon. And if it is, it's a very short one. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Brief and to the point, three things they have done, three things they need to do. What have they done? You have been unfaithful, that is to the covenant between God and his people. They have married foreign women. They have broken God's law. And thirdly, they have added to Israel's guilt. And again, guilt is not seen primarily as individual. My sin, it's our sin, we as a people. So, we already know that Israel has sinned in the past. And it seems as though these people are just adding on, they're piling on to the guilt of Israel. Back in chapter 9, in Ezra's prayer, he said, Our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. And now these guys are adding more to it. So what should they do? Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers. That is, agree with what he says. By the way, that's what confession is. It isn't sort of flagellation, I'm a terrible person. Oh, you know. It's, you say this is wrong. You tell me not to do this. And I did it. But you are right and I am wrong. That's what confession is about. It's agreeing with what God says. Because otherwise, I mean, it's just a matter of his opinion. Uh, And it's just sort of emotional self-flagellation. No, it is saying, I absolutely agree with you. And what I did was wrong. Because you said it was wrong. Secondly, they are to do his will. They are to do that which pleases God. So far, they've been doing whatever they want and Ezra calls them to repent and then thirdly they are to separate themselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives and here it is the call to divorce their heathen wives and how do they respond? verse 12 the whole assembly responded with a loud voice you are right we must do as you say one might argue that this qualifies as miraculous they agree with him what he has said is right. They do have a suggestion, however, found in verses 13 and 14. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season so that we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. It's a very amazing statement. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Let Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. If we could put the response in a single sentence, it would be, this is a serious matter. In fact, it's so serious, we can't take care of it in a day or two. And we can't take care of it by ourselves. We need officials, we need the elders, we need the judges to help us in this matter. So they suggest that Ezra send the officials... And these officials will travel from town to town. And each town has elders and judges. And the person, the man who has married a heathen woman, will then appear before them and publicly in their presence will say, I hereby divorce this heathen woman. And I am sending her back to her people with her children. They will do this until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away. Verse 15 not as clear as we might want only Jonathan son of Asahel and Jaziah boy, I'm having trouble with names today Jaziah son of Tikva supported by Mishulam and Shabbatai, the Levite opposed this our problem is we don't know what the this is so we don't know if they opposed the, the solution of divorcing the women because in verse number 12 the whole assembly said you're right this is what we should do um it could be that they feel like this is going to take too long. They want it done right away. We simply don't know. But what we do know is that the proposal was accepted by the majority and put into practice. Verse 16. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division and all of them designated by name on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they had finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. It takes three months, three months to hear the cases and for the divorces to be made legal, to be put into effect. This is a serious matter, something that must be dealt with appropriately. Go through the right procedures, not just in a few days. And it's not simply because it is a dissolution of marriages and families. It is that but it is because they have sinned greatly against God. And this is not a small thing. When you hear this, doesn't it seem a bit extreme to you? Doesn't it seem quite intolerant? Doesn't it smack of xenophobia? We don't want to marry, no, we don't want to marry any non-Jews. Doesn't it sound unbiblical, unchristian? You can imagine a man has a wife, let's say five children, and now he's being told you need to divorce this woman, send her back to her people, along with the five kids. What does the Bible say about divorce? From what we can tell, in the ancient world, it was common, but it was not something that God instituted. It's not part of his original plan for marriage. Jesus told his disciples that there were provisions made when the law was given because of the hardness of the people's hearts. They had rejected marriage as permanent. God said, you know, what uh, God has put together, let no man put asunder. And people are like, no, uh, if we want to split up, then we have the right to do that. In Matthew 19, Jesus deals with this. And let me read it to you. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Whatever reason you want. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked. Did Moses command, interesting their language, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples, that is the disciples of Jesus, said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better better not to marry. I think every time I read Matthew 19, it is verse number 10 that always gets me, because I know the Pharisees had a very loose view of divorce. In fact, there was a whole contingent within Pharisaism that said, if a woman burned a man's supper, he could divorce her. He divorce her for any and every reason. Okay, so the Pharisees I get. Okay, but the disciples. I would assume would be of a better moral character, that they would have a better or a higher view of marriage. And yet when Jesus says that marriage is permanent, the disciples see marriage then as unattractive. It's better not to get hey, if I can't get divorced, then I better not get married. I find that very striking. They should have known better though, because the last book in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, we read I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself or his wife with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. God hates divorce. Let's go back to Ezra. If God hates divorce, then why is Ezra, why are the people of Israel saying that this is a solution? Why tell the Jews you need to divorce your Gentile wives? As I said earlier, it's not the, simply a matter of intermarriage. It isn't an ethnic thing. It is what comes with it. And those are the detestable practices of the people around them. As Ezra sees it, you've got two choices in this situation. First of all, it shouldn't have existed. They should have never married these women in the first place. Okay. But as Ezra sees it, there are two options here. The first is they can get rid of these wives. They can put them away. Or secondly, they can remain married to them with the consequences of falling into apostasy and then being put in exile again. So we've heard this story before. We know how this turned out before. So we can either do that again or we can correct the situation by divorcing these women and sending them home. And for Ezra and the rest of Israel, the choice is clear. Now, I don't know if you've looked ahead But the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse number 18, is a list of the men who had married pagan women and who, in fact, divorced their wives. There's no cover up here. There isn't like, and they took care of this, that type of thing. We have names, okay? These are the men who married heathen women and. By God's grace, they put them away. They divorced them to be faithful to God. I think we would prefer to sweep it under the rug and just leave out the dirty details. Okay, no need to embarrass anybody here. You know, we'll just say that we took care of it. This is not what we find in Scripture. Scripture is truly filled with candor. It doesn't hide anything. The end results are that 17 priests. Ten Levites and 86 laymen, a total of 113 men who were married to heathen women, divorced them. They put them away as had been commanded. Four things stand out to me in this passage, beginning of verse 18. First of all, the number isn't as large as I was expecting. They make a big deal about this, and you have 113 men. Uh, We know that there are more than 40,000 people in the land. This doesn't sound like a huge number. The number is not the issue. It's not the issue at all. The issue is the people of God, some within the community are guilty of sin and it taints everything. It affects the whole community. Sin is sin. Whether by few or by many, yeah. Secondly, almost one-fourth of the men listed are religious leaders. Almost 25% are religious leaders. Uh, this is a problem when the people who are supposed to be te- telling people, teaching people, living by example, how people should live, you know, leading by example, um, when they're doing the wrong thing, the problem is truly serious. In the listing of the guilty, the priests are mentioned first. If you go back to chapter 2 when it talks about the 42,000 who go back to Jerusalem, we have the lay people first and the priests at the end. Now when it comes to their sin, the priests are put at the forefront. They are mentioned first. These are the men who were guilty and who have made things right. And if you look at verse number uh, 19, they all gave their hands and pledged to put away their wives and for their guilt they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. Uh, They acknowledged their guilt. And I think not just the priests but every one of these 113 men. We have 113 rams that are sacrificed because they didn't simply go to court and give their wife a divorce. They went before God and confessed their guilt and gave a sin offering. I said at the beginning that the book ends differently than it begins. And I think what we should take from it today is the issue, first of all, of communal guilt. I think this is one, as American Christians, yeah, we, we just don't buy into it. We're very much individuals. And I think we're individuals in the positive sense that when I do something good, look at me. When I've done something bad, well, shame on me. It's, it's, it's on me. It's my bad. Um, and in scripture, no, you're part of a community. You're part of a community. Uh, and when you sin, it, in fact, affects and infects the whole community second thing, for me at least, what I take away from this is that the miraculous does not give us permission to do less than what we should. I mean, Cyrus sends them back. Darius provides for them. Artaxerxes sends all this gold and silver. I mean, these are just absolutely astounding things that have happened. You could just say, God has blessed us. So now we can do whatever we want. We're special. God has treated us special. And therefore we have a little leeway perhaps to not follow the rules as we should. Something else. We saw this last week that the people who are doing this are the people who who built the temple. It isn't the people who came with Ezra. He comes 58 years later. This is the second generation of temple builders. They've done an amazing thing. I'm sorry, that does not give you permission to break God's law. You can't say, well, I'm special. I've done something great in the past. Uh, Therefore, I can get away with whatever I want. How are we to apply this with regard to ourselves in the matter of divorce? It might seem some would argue that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses a similar issue. And he gives an entirely different answer. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So it seems that Paul is saying the opposite of Ezra. First of all, Paul is not addressing the same issue at all. Okay? Paul is addressing the issue whereby you have two people, probably Gentiles who are not believers, they're pagans and Paul comes into town he preaches the gospel, he tells them about Jesus and one of these one of the, either the husband or the wife becomes a Christian, becomes a believer, so now you have a household where you have a believer and a non-believer, what are you supposed to do, should we follow Ezra's advice and kick one of them out Paul says no then in fact they are to stay together Now, some people get nervous about this because he starts out by saying, I say this, I, not the Lord. In other words, people are like, oh, that's just Paul's opinion. That's what he's doing. Not at all. Jesus did not address this issue because Jesus did not face this issue. Jesus came to preach to the Jews. Paul is preaching to Jews and Gentiles. And Paul faces a situation in which you have couples where one is a believer and one is not. And so now he must give what God says with regard to this. Jesus didn't because he did not face this. And what he says is that, in fact, they are to stay together. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with the believing spouse, then, in fact, they should stay together. Paul says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. See, the kingdom has come. Jesus has brought the kingdom. And the dynamics have changed. It is not now where contamination or sin is greater than any type of holiness. It's quite the reverse. It's the story that I mentioned the other Sunday of Jesus touching a leper. Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. In the same way in a marriage where, by the way, this is not a believer marrying an unbeliever. This is where they were both unbelievers when they got married. And by God's grace, through the believing spouse, the other one in fact is sanctified. And so are the children. Paul had a very biblical view of marriage. It's something that God instituted and it is intended to be permanent. We should see it the same way. But I think there's something in us that sort of inwardly, small steps or maybe big, really rebels against this. It's like, why, why is God so picky about these things? Why, why doesn't he just let us do what we want? Why do there have to be Rules. Well, you know, it's interesting. I find it interesting as a pastor because this is the question that people ask me when they want to do something that they're not supposed to. But, you know, in the rest of life, we seem fairly comfortable with rules. You know, if you touch something that's really hot, you're going to get burned. I don't know if I would call it a rule, but that's what's going to happen. Okay? I find myself getting irritated sometimes with my computer when I type something in and I mistype something and I get angry at the computer because I say, you know what I meant why didn't you put up what I meant? Well, because I didn't type in what I meant. In the same way, when it comes to marriage and divorce God is very specific. Um, This is how it's supposed to be. It is only our own rebellious sinfulness I think that pushes against this. There have been times in the past. This is terrible to confess, but when riding the bus system here, uh, I find myself getting annoyed with the fact that I can't get on any bus at any time and go anywhere I want. I have to follow their schedule. What's up with that? I mean, why why does the number ten bus go down Melrose? I mean, why can't it go up Vermont? Well, that's the way it is, and we accept that. Why is it that we cannot accept what God says? God made us. He made Adam and then Eve and he said they are to be one flesh they are not to be separated and God says I've made a covenant with you my people you are to keep the terms of the covenant. I said the book began with the miraculous I would argue it ends with the miraculous because these people do as Ezra tells them. I think if Ezra were to be around today, in many churches, people would say, you're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. But God's people listen. And as a result, they continue. Let's pray together. Father, we are so strange that on the one hand we rebel against rules and On the other hand, we meekly go along with them, knowing that's just how things are. In our rebellion against what you have told us, and you've told us this not to make us miserable, but because you made us. You are the manufacturer, if you wish. You know how we are to live. I thank you for the wonderful example of Ezra. A humble man. A man who not only was a scholar in the law, but someone who practiced what he had studied and taught others to do the same. A man who is deeply grieved for the sin of his people. Not simply publicly for show, but genuinely, even in private. And by your grace, as a result, your people repented. They confessed their sins, and they made things right. May we learn from their example. May we see that we stand as a community, not as individuals, and that we are to be people of obedience, not simply doing whatever it is we want. Thank you for bringing us together. ask for wisdom in the meeting we're to have after the service we pray for Tom in the coming week This busy busy schedule that you would give him strength and we thank you for giving another year to Rory and for bringing her and Ken to our congregation may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today I pray in Jesus name Amen.